Right, we are going to look at Colossians again. Uh, Jess, you got a signal there? And um, we're looking at chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, please take out your Bibles. Or if you've got your phone, open your phone to your Bible app or whatever you have. Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20 is what we've been looking at. We looked at it last week. And I'm going to focus in particular on verse 16 to 20 today. And in particular on one verse, verse 17. And the title of my message is, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What an amazing statement. He is before all things, and in Him, in Christ, all things hold together. We're going to look at that amazing promise this morning. So I'm going to just read verse 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent." For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I suppose I could have called my message that, that phrase as well. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It is an amazing portion of Scripture. And as I've said before, this is one of the high points of uh, portions in the New Testament that speak about Jesus, that speak about who Jesus is in the most wonderful way. It's taken me four weeks to get to this place, and I've done it uh, purposefully to go slowly to introduce the themes that Paul wants us to understand out of this book. And um, you know that he's already introduced himself to the church in, in, in uh, Colossia. Remember, Colossia was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Remember, Ephesus is just to the west of it. And there were three towns that were all in the, in the Lysias Valley, uh, Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea, and Colossia. They were all three together. And I said to you that Colossia was a major center, and then a road was built around it, which meant that it was no longer a major center. And so by the time Paul writes this, uh, this letter, it's, it's no longer a major kind of play. It's like a small town, and he's writing to the church that uh, we think Epaphras has planted this church from Ephesus. Remember, Epaphras and Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, and just to the east of it is Colossia. So scholars think that Epaphras was the one that went. And now at the end of his life, while he's in Rome, Paul is writing these letters, and Epaphras comes to him and says there's some, some problems in the Colossian church, and so he writes back to help them with these uh, problems. And we looked at his prayer in detail, the way that he prays for the church, and we looked that he, through that prayer, he was trying to inspire these Christians uh, to live in a certain way because they had been qualified for the inheritance that God had for them. And I said to you, that's the main purpose of our lives, is that we have an inheritance. 
We have an inheritance that is eternal. We have an inheritance that we've been qualified for because Jesus has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That qualify, that's what uh, qualifies us for our inheritance. And the ABC of Christian life, of becoming a disciple, is learning to enjoy your inheritance. That's why we pray. That's why we give. That's why we love each other. That's why we go on missions. It's the ABC of church life. It's basic discipleship. And it's quite possible that you might have been a Christian, a believer, for many years and not yet be a disciple. Quite possible. I know lots of people like that. Call themselves Christians, but they're not disciples. Don't pray. Don't give. Don't love anybody. Just live their lives saved, but not having any earthly inheritance to enjoy or internal inheritance to enjoy. We want to become disciples of Jesus, not just believers. Possible to believe without being a disciple. And that really is what Paul is challenging these Christians to, to become disciples, to live for their inheritance in eternity and here on earth. And so he does this in the most wonderful, thoughtful way. And I said to you, even his introduction is loaded with meaning. Every single word that he uses is loaded with meaning. It's not just formality. You know, sometimes when you write a letter, it's dear so-and-so, how are you? And you get to the chase. Yeah? Paul, when he writes this letter, every single part of the letter, even the introduction, the way he greets them as faithful brothers in Christ to the saints in Philippi, everything is loaded with meaning that he wants us to understand. And so now he comes to the main point of his letter. And I just want to remind you, uh, this amazing portion, some people think it was possibly a hymn or a poem that was like a set piece that people already knew. And uh, Paul introduces it here into his letter. That's a possibility. It could have been something like that. And I'm going to look at it today as a poem uh, with two distinct sections and one line that joins the two sections together. So we're going to look at that um, in a short while. But just, just you might think that as, as Paul is writing this letter, he would begin, if he thinks there are problems, he would begin by warning them about the problems. And the dangers that we're facing, and I, and I try to say to you over the last couple of weeks that those dangers really should be as obvious to us as they were to Paul as, as we read this letter through. And uh, he, he, in other letters, he did that. So, for example, when you read 1 Corinthians, um, there, there was problems of division in the church, and Paul, he cuts to it quite quickly. So he, he has his introduction in 1 Corinthians, and by verse 10, he's already into his main point. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and there would be no divisions amongst you, and that you be united with the same mind and the same judgment. So in 1 Corinthians, he gets straight to his point. In Colossians, he doesn't do that. It seems like he's got these guys in mind that are, are influencing the church in a certain way, and um, trying to present their version of teaching as, the, as an attractive version of teaching to these Christians. But the first thing that he does is launch into this most beautiful um, magnificent description of who Jesus is. And I've said to you already, that's one of the high points of the New Testament. And I think he does that because he is aware that these Colossians, they haven't willingly been unfaithful. It's not like they're rebels. It's not like they're really doing stuff that um, is absolutely wrong. It's, it's that they've allowed themselves to be influenced by this teaching that is not really um, uh, the true teaching that Epaphras had, had, had given them. And so he realizes that they're probably just a little bit immature. They haven't uh, yet grasped what it means to believe in Jesus in a, in a, in a full way. And so his, his language is quite friendly. It's, it's, not, it's not strong. And I remember when we did Galatians, Paul la Paul's language is very strong. Remember? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
I mean, it's strong language in Galatians. Yeah, it's much more friendly, much more engaging. He's trying to persuade them. He's trying to say, guys, let me help you understand. I know you, you're saved, you believe in Jesus, but I want to help you understand the fullness of who Jesus is, that, that you can worship truly, that you can become a disciple truly. Are you with me? So it's much more friendly, much more engaging. And so he's, he, know, he knows that they haven't willingly been unfaithful to what Epaphras had brought. But they have seemingly, their, their kind of attention has been drawn by these guys in the church who are saying, ah, oh, well, you know, what Epaphras brought was, was good, but this is the real thing that you must go after. And we looked at some of those things, philosophy, belief in angels, all these kind of things that he explores further. And really, I think that Paul, in, his, in this portion, is trying to say to these guys, that's an, a mistake you've made. It's been done in innocence, but really what it is is a failure to understand who Jesus is and what it means to be loyal to Jesus. And that's why he's trying to help them understand that. And so in a stroke of absolute genius and great wisdom, he starts the beginning of his letter with this brilliant exposition, this unpacking of the supremacy, the lordship, the absolute magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he knows, Paul knows, that if people can understand that, they will understand that Jesus is sufficient for every area of their life. If you understand the magnificence of who Christ is, what he's done for you, all that he's achieved by his death and resurrection, and your absolute, your heart is transfixed by that, everything else in your life takes its rightful place. And that's what Paul is saying. He's trying to get them to understand. If you understand who Jesus is, you will understand he's sufficient for every area of your life. And he wants them to understand that deeply. And so I said, this is probably a poem. And uh, what I find quite amazing is that when you think this letter has only been written 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, already the church is using this kind of language to describe Christ. That is amazing to me. This language of he is the image of the, of the invisible God. He's the firstborn amongst creation. Already this language has been commonly used by the church 30 years after Jesus died and was res res resurrected from the dead. So, um, Jess, there is a, a PowerPoint just with the Scripture. It's only got the Scripture up. So I'd like us to think about this this morning in two sections. So if you, if you are reading in your Bible, can I just say the first section, if we, if we think this is a poem, if we treat it as a poem, the first stanza, the first verse, is verse 15 and 16. So if you'd like to read that, that's the first little, the first little stanza. And the second stanza, the second little verse, is from verse 18 to 20. All right? And here's the key statement in the beginning. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And each of these two verses, these two stanzas, Stanzas, they each have a statement about Jesus that Paul is trying to get us to understand. So in verse 15, the key, um, the key statement is, He is the image of the invisible God. All right? That's what Paul is trying to, the main point he's driving home. And in the second verse, the second, second stanza, the main point is verse 18. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning. And so both of these uh, Verses have a key statement about Jesus, and both of them talk about his lordship, that he's, he, he rules over all. In the first stanza, it says he is lord of creation, of every created thing, verse 15. And in the second stanza, it also says he's the firstborn amongst the dead. So he doesn't just rule over the living, but he rules over the dead as well. So in all things, Christ has supremacy and rules. And then 
both of these verses, they mention the heavens and the earth. So, for, for example, um, in verse 16, it mentions the heavens and the earth, things that are visible, things that are in, invisible. And it says that all those things have been created for Jesus. And in the second stanza, it says all things on, in heaven and earth are reconciled to himself through his blood. And so there's this idea that the whole of the universe is being reconciled to Christ because of what he achieved and bought for us on the cross. So not only are we redeemed, but all of creation, all of that has been fall, that was fallen after the, the fall of Adam and Eve, all of that is being reconciled back to him through the blood of Christ. It is amazing. So what I'm saying to you, Paul is in a very radical way using language to speak about huge things, and, and he manages to make in a few sentences, encapsulates so much. I'm so grateful for this man. Don't, don't let people f fool you to say that Christianity is just by faith and you just need to believe. No, you believe with your mind. And there were great thinkers that have thought about these things and written them down in profound ways so that you and I can have the benefit of that. Amen? So we need both. We need people of passion and faith, and we need people to think and write things down and actually engage so that we can all understand what God has for us. And I'm so grateful for, for Paul and for these churches that he wrote to that had problems because we can learn from these things. And he has the key statement. He is before things, and in him all things hold together. And I'm going to focus on that in detail in a short while. But just a couple of comments out of the first, the first little verse, the first little stanza. It says he is the image of the invisible God. And that he there refers back to verse 13. And remember what we learned in verse 13 last week? We talked about the incarnation, the incarnate Son of God, the Son of God who came in the flesh, the one who redeemed us on the cross. And so here those two things are connected. And the he that Paul is referring to is talking about the, the incarnate Son of God. And it says, he's saying that incarnate Son of God is the image of the invisible God. Now, I'm not trying to get too complicated, but Paul writes and says, none of us have ever seen God. Any of you seen God? No, none of us have. Paul says, no one has seen God. God is invisible in, in, to all of us, but he's found a way to make himself known to us. This is the wonder of what Paul is saying. He has sent his son, who is identical in every way, in character and in divine nature, to the Father. And he has sent him, who fully represents the fullness of God, to you and I. And we might not have seen God, but we have seen Jesus in the flesh. This is the wonder of what Paul is saying. That's why Jesus could say, in the Gospels, if you've seen me, you have seen God the Father. You think about that, that is an incredible statement for anyone to make who is not truly the Son of God. Paul says, uh, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, if you want to see what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. If you want to know how God treats people, Look at how Jesus treated people. If you want to know the compassion of the Father in heaven, all you have to do is look at the compassion of Jesus the Son, and He fully represents the compassion of Christ and the way that He treats people. When you think about Jesus' righteousness and purity and wisdom, you may know that in all of His righteousness, purity, and wisdom, He is fully 
the Father. He is fully representing the Father perfectly in human flesh, in righteousness, purity, and joy in a human form. He fully represents to us who God is. Do you get it? This is the wonder of what we believe as Christians. Jesus is the fullness of God, the exact image of God, not a reasonable facsimile, not like a photocopy, which is about right, but not exactly. He, he is the full, exact representation, the fullness of all of who God is represented in human flesh. That's what Paul is saying. Now, he has the other thing that is absolutely wonderful. You and I are not Jesus, are we? We are not. We are not God's Son incarnate. But the Bible says that you and I have been adopted as sons and daughters. Man, that is incredible. So we are not like Jesus in the sense we are not the incarnation of God in the fullness of human flesh. But you and I have been, are like Jesus in that we have been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And the Bible encourages us that in all things we are to become more and more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That's a wonder. And here, to apply this to our lives, I want to ask you a difficult question. And it might, you might say it's an easy question, but I found that as I've tried to answer it honestly, it's a difficult question to ask myself. And here it is. I ask you to make this question of your own heart. How much of Jesus do people see in you? How much of Jesus do people see in me? How, how much of when I respond to people out of compassion or hardness of heart, how much, do I, how much do I represent God the Father or Jesus the Son to those that are in my life? Racially, how much do you represent Jesus? Do you, do you bring people together of different races? Or do we say, oh, we believe in, we believe in one tribe, in one people in heaven one day, but not on earth. No, I don't want anyone of a different race coming into my home. How much of Jesus do we represent to those on earth? Are you with me? And if you ask that question of yourself honestly, it's a difficult question to answer. How much of Jesus' compassion do I reflect to others? And to, uh, how do I, when I engage with my wife and family, how much of Jesus do I represent to them? And of course, I'm saying to you, if that scares you like it scared me this week, then, we, then I, I'm pointing you to this very simple thing. We, we need to say, Jesus, I need your spirit more and more and more in my life. Help me, please. D help me. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. We can't do this by ourselves. Yeah, flying again. It's the spotlight, obviously. Just like... We can't do this by ourselves. We desperately need the Holy Spirit's fullness in our lives to help us. That we are reconcilers. We are ambassadors. We do represent Christ well to those that we love in our families and friends and in our workplaces, everywhere that we are bringing people to the head who is Jesus. From every tribe, every people group, every race. Because that's what his heart is for. God so loved the world that he gave his son. You with me? And so I say that all just to remind us our complete dependency on the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you to desire His power with all of your heart and your life. So that's the first thing that verse um, 15 speaks about. It speaks about the relationship of Jesus 
to, with God. And that is the exact representation of the fullness of God. And secondly, it goes on to speak of the relationship of Jesus to all of God's creation. It says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing that was created. That's not what firstborn means. Again, sometimes language, we, we, we need to look at it carefully because we lose the original meaning. Uh, the, the, the original meaning of firstborn has been forgotten in the way that Paul used it here. And this is what I mean. In English, when you use the word nice, all right, you, you're communi communicating something to someone. You are a nice person. That, that means uh, I like you. I want to engage with you. You're nice. I, I want to get to know you. Yeah, that's, the, that's when we use that word. That's what we mean. But actually, the Latin, which is the root word of nice, is nesius, which actually means ignorant. So when we say, hey, you're really nice, Jack. We're not saying... I'm not communicating to Jack with the original meaning of the word, which says, really, Jack, you're quite ignorant. You're quite... I'm not saying that. Of course I'm not. So we've lost the meaning of the word. In the way that we use it now, it means something else. And in the same way, what Paul was doing when he used the word firstborn, in his, in his culture, in the ancient world, the, the, the term firstborn meant lord, meant master, meant ruler over everything in the household. That's what it meant. And so what he, Paul is saying here is that Jesus is firstborn. He, after the Father, is Lord and Master of the universe. He rules everything. And in the ancient culture, the firstborn son had uh, ownership over the inheritance, over the household. He would, he would tell what the servants, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. He passed on the, the inheritance through his line to those that came after him. And so Paul is saying, Jesus is firstborn over all creation. He is Lord and master of everything. He's not, it's not that he was the first one created. Are you with me? He is Lord and master. And so it's a different way of saying that uh, after Father, the Father being the head, Jesus is the head, the Lord, the master of all creation. And actually, Psalm 89 says that. It says, speaking of Jesus and speaking of David, I will appoint him my firstborn, the Lord and master, and the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And uh, yeah, that's the, the meaning that Paul is using. Um, the other thing I'd like to just point out in verse 15, it says, um, referring back to the incarnate Son of God, which uh, he says that Jesus has come in the flesh. Uh, that's a kind of, also it's a, a shortcut way of, of speaking and putting some things together. So for example, if I can illustrate it like this. If I said to you, Queen Elizabeth was born on the 26th of April, 1926, you would all know what I mean, isn't it? Yeah, I'm speaking about Queen Elizabeth, but the point is, when she was born on the 26th, she was not yet queen. Of course she wasn't. She was, only, she was only inaugurated in the 1952. But when we speak about the queen, we say, oh no, the queen was born in 1926. It's a shortcut way of speaking. It's a, it's a, in the same way Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He was first born. He's putting these two things together. He's saying to us, the one that later take, took on flesh and lived with us was already the divine son. He was already the Lord and master of all of the universe. Already. And that's how he's putting the two together. You with me? 
He's Lord of, Master of every created thing. And why, do, why does Paul need to labor this? Well, as you read on Colossians, remember, there were people in this church that somehow thought that Jesus wasn't really enough. The gospel wasn't really enough for, for, for all that they needed. Uh, the, his, his, the work that Jesus had, had done and that Paphos had taught, uh, told them about, it needed some help. And the help that it needed was they needed angels to help them as well. You know, Jesus is enough, but we need angels as well. And Jesus is enough, but we need Jewish tradition as well. We kind of need to help Jesus a little bit. Because <laughs> we believe he's the Savior, but I'm not quite sure. We're, perhaps we need angels to help us as well, just to help Jesus a little. And that's what it crept into this church. And Paul is saying, no, none of those things have any connection to Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand. And so he says, this Savior who has saved us is the creator of the universe. He has always been the creator of us. There's no, nothing in all creation that has power over him. He is all-powerful. He reigns over all things. And if you have Jesus in your life, every evil power that ever has been around and created has been conquered for you. Jesus is the creator that has become the infinite redeemer, the absolute redeemer of all things. Amen. And then Paul goes on, and he says in verse 16, and he describes how great the power of Jesus is in the universe. He says, He's the Lord of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And what he's trying to say is that every department of the universe, Jesus is Lord over it. Every single department of everything in the universe, Jesus is Lord. So Elon Musk has sent this um, rocket up into, it's going to, orbit for millions of years and his car is there <laughs> his tesla car with the little guy inside looking exploring the universe uh, it's interesting that i saw mr trump claimed did you see what he said he claimed this was an example of the great ingenuity of american people and he said a couple of years ago a couple of months ago that actually people from expletive countries shouldn't come to America. Remember he said that? It's one of those people from one of those countries that sent the rocket that's going to go all over for millions and millions of years. Rant over. God is the Lord of all creation. Every tribe, every people, every kingdom. All things were created by him. So, the universe, every department. And, the, and now he seems, to make, um, he seems to make reference to angels. And uh, what does he say? Why do I say that? Well, scholars would agree that here, when he uses this, these words um, of, of uh, dominions and rulers and thrones, he's really speaking about angels. And he's trying to, he's trying to drive home this point to, um, to, to the people because they had this fascination with angels. So he's saying that um, there's some that possibly rule over thrones. That's uh, different authorities. Some have a senior rank. He calls those principalities. Some have a limited authority. He calls those um, just authorities. They're not quite so senior. And Paul's point is simple. Every spiritual being that ever was created, that whether an angel or a fallen angel, whether an angel or a demon, every single one of those created um, powers have been put under the authority of Jesus. He rules over all. And so that's very important for Paul to say that these people understand that actually Christ rules over 
every single thing, angels included. All things have been created for him, he says in verse 16. And then we come to this middle of the poem, the key statement, and he says, Jesus is before all things, and all things hold together in him. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what Paul is actually saying is that the entire universe would disintegrate if it wasn't for Jesus holding the whole thing together by the power of his word. That's what he's saying. Can you think about that for a while? The billions of universes, the unlimited space that we know goes on just for eternity. <laughs> Paul says all of that would fall apart without Jesus holding all things together. He is the center of all things. He's the supreme ruler over all creation and over every alien power. Everything is under the authority of Jesus. Now, where I come from in Africa, there are many deliverance ministries. Deliverance ministries that deliver people from all sorts of things. Demonic oppression, ancestral curses, demonic powers. And often these ministries set themselves up as rivals to those that preach the gospel. Almost to say, if you preach the gospel of Jesus, it's not, kind of, it's not enough. You need more power than that. There's no real power in preaching the gospel. You, you need deliverance as well. You need to, and it's interesting that these ministries always encourage giving to their particular ministry. <laughs> Let me remind you, your deliverance happens the moment Jesus transfers you from the old kingdom into the new. You don't get saved a little. You don't get delivered a little. You get totally delivered out of the old into the new. You get totally rescued out of the old into the new. Are you with me? This is what we believe as Christians. You can't be saved a little. You can't be rescued a little. You are totally rescued. You are totally saved. And that's Paul's point in verse 13. If you have been saved by Jesus, He is sufficient for you in every way. You have been delivered out of the old into the new. You don't have to pay a lot of money to go to deliverance ministry. Jesus has already delivered you by the power of His Spirit. Do people need help? Yes, they do. I'm not saying they don't need help. Of course they do. Counseling and all those things are good things. But fundamentally, you have been delivered out of the old into the new by Jesus. He has transferred you. You are never back in the old. Come on now. And so Paul, that's what he's trying to get these people to see. You have had a great rescue in your life. Totally rescue. And Jesus is supreme over everything. Over every demonic power, every alien power, he's supreme. You don't have to worry. Now Paul moves on and he says, all things hold together. And he goes on to say, this is true not only of the spiritual world, but it is true of the church. And he says in the second half, the second stanza, Jesus rules over the whole church. It's not that the secular powers rule over nations and Jesus just rules over his church. No, Jesus is the head of everything. The universe, the nations, the church. And he's ruling everything with power in every way. And what a great, great, great day it's going to be when all of us are in heaven together, worshiping the Lord from every tribe and people group and na nation. What a day that's going to be. That's going to be amazing. And he's saying Jesus is the head of this amazing body over which he rules. So what does this think about it? What does a body do? Um, a body. What does a head do? What does the head do? The head thinks. The head sees. The head hears, and all of the body takes, its, takes its, um, its orders from the head. Isn't that true? It is, the, it is the headquarters of the body. 
the head. Isn't that true? And so Jesus, Paul is saying, Jesus is the headquarters for every Christian. And actually the whole body would not function if it were not for Jesus. And so in a very simple way, he's saying that the head is Christ. And we are not in our lives, in our ministries, to divert any attention away from Jesus, the head, to ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. It's the head that holds all things together. In him, he is the fullness of everything. And your and my responsibility is to point people towards the head, to Jesus. Not to me, my ministry, my preaching. No, all of that must point to Jesus, to him. That's what Paul is saying. And so he's trying to get these people to see that the, the, these guys that come to the church and said, oh, well, you know, that, that stuff that Paul taught you and Epaphras taught you about Jesus, that's okay, but let me give you some special, more deeper revelation. You really need angels as well, and you really need the Jewish tradition to help you because, I mean, Paul was right, but not exactly. Paul's saying rubbish. All of that detracts from him who is the head. None of that has any connection to Jesus who is the head. All your life, all your energy, all, all your might, point people to Jesus as the head. The freedom that he brings, the liberty that he brings, he's sufficient in every way for all of your life. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let anything take away from Jesus. Jesus is your covering. He's your deliverer. You don't have to waste your money on seminars and stuff that are going to cost you a lot of money and promise much and do little. Just put your trust in Jesus, in his fullness, in the power of his spirit in your life. Let him change your heart. Leave your racial prejudice. Leave your anger. Leave all that stuff at the foot of the cross and come to Christ and say, renew my heart, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Help me to engage. He is sufficient. He's the head of all things. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. I want to encourage you with that this morning. I want it to come to life in your heart that it would transform you and you would be empowered to live your life in the most amazing way because Christ, the head, dwells in you by the power of His Spirit. Amen.